Welcome to Real Good Company, a show about real people building good companies that make a big impact. We go behind the scenes to get the good, the bad, and the ugly. So you can become a better leader and gain fresh wisdom for both your personal and professional life. I'm your host, Allison Trebridge. And I'm your host, Caitlin Crosby-Benward. And you're in In Real Real Good Good Company. Company. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, this is a very important and special episode of Real Good Company. Caitlin and I are here today joined by our very dear friend, William Matthews, who is an artist advocate and one of the hosts of the Liturgist podcast, and really someone who has been hugely impactful and influential in my life in helping me understand the Black experience in America and my implication and own fragility as a white person in understanding the systems of racism that are pervasive in this country. William, I think that you are a prophetic voice and we are so, so grateful to have you on the show today to speak to our audience about the most important issue in America right now. Yeah, I respect you and I've respected you for so many years, kind of from afar and similar friend groups and in passing. And you're somebody that I really look up to and know that you have so much wisdom that I personally, and I know all of our our listeners will, you know, really grow from. And I'm so, so grateful that you're taking the time to share your heart and experience and wisdom with us. And we wanted to take a break. You know, our podcast is normally about one thing, but we just felt with this time in history, this is the most important topic to talk about. So we are so grateful that you are here. Oh, thank you both for having me. I think you both are just badass women who are out here in the world, in the business world, really like taking up space in ways that I think are really important. And so I'm proud of both of you and just our friendships. And also just knowing that you guys are out there killing it is just, I'm I'm always proud of you. I'm always telling everybody about you guys. So thanks, Ben. I would love to know a little bit about, you know, being an artist advocate and what is that exactly? Yeah, well, so I'm a singer songwriter, recording artist, you know, by trade. I've been singing my whole life. Uh, I grew up in the black church. My mother was a choir director. My dad was a preacher, pastor. And so for me as an artist uh, and an advocate, I took it from the great Nina Simone, who has this wonderful quote in which she says, you know, to be an artist is to reflect the times that you live in. Mm. And, you know, for me, for a long time, like especially being in the church doing uh, Christian music, you know, normally Christian music is, you know, seen as like this vertical expression of corporate worship to God. And oftentimes we don't think of Christian music as something that's supposed to reflect uh, the people in which are creating the music, the context of the music. But my experience in the Black church, first and foremost, was an experience where, where music grounded people in the reality of their lives, not just an existential mm. belief in God or a sense of like, you know, part of it was the, you know, one day we're going to go on to glory, the, you know, heaven thing. But another part of it was giving uh, faith in the moment. So the Black church, in my experience growing up in it, was a, a shelter for Black pain. Mm. gospel music was the balm, the the nourishing 
agent at work inside of our resistance to white supremacy. Wow. So, you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates, who's a great author, writes, you know, in his book, he grew up atheist and he actually said growing up, I didn't have the sacred mysteries of the church to shield me or, you know, from white supremacy. But my experience was the church was the safe place. It was wow. the, safe, the, the place where black people can come together to express, you know, lament, grief, to dance, to shout, to also to um, receive encouragement to get through the week especially dealing with Black folks, mostly poor working Black folks who were on the front lines in a lot of these institutions, which are inherently racist. And so I didn't understand that fully growing up, but I knew that our songs were about togetherness. I knew that the legacy and history of gospel music was about God being with us, God being for us, um, and God giving us the courage to, to go out into the world and, and to love and to make a difference. So Artist Advocate for me was just something for me to try to hold both things in reality that for me to be an artist is to ask the question, is it beautiful? Mm. Is it beautiful? And if it's beautiful, it's worth staring at. It's worth looking at. It's worth acknowledging. It's worth worshiping. And so to be an artist is to create beauty. But, but out of that beauty, I think, comes a sense of advocacy, which if I can make a clear delineation here, I think there's a difference between compassionate service and advocacy. Compassionate service is, you know, someone's sick and we start a GoFundMe for their medical bills because they can't pay them. That's a great service. Compassionate service is, you know, when I grew up in the Black church, we'd often um, provide like meals to the homeless or low-income neighborhood kids whose, you know, parents couldn't afford lunches for them. You know, and, and that was something the church did as a type of compassionate service and kindness to the community. But advocacy asks a different question, which is, why are there so many homeless people? Mm. Why can't most Americans afford health care or, or afford health care that covers everything for them? And so, you know, I, I wanted to take the conversation beyond simple acts of kindness and I wanted to highlight advocacy as something that we all can do, meaning we all can participate in systemic change and we all can talk to the root of the issue, not just simply the symptom of an issue. So that's kind of what artist advocate means to me. And I, I think there's a connection there, but I also think there's a tension in those things. And I wanted to draw the, the parallel to the tension of, an, of someone who's an artist, but also advocates for um, the marginalized people. And in my, my cause of advocacy that I love the most is I am for the healing and the liberation of Black people. Mm. Mm. as a whole. Like that is the core principle value system of my life, mainly because I am black and yeah. I, I, I love the people who produced me. Yeah. I love the neighborhoods that I came from. I was born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, you know, one, a great American city that, that created the automobile and, and created uh, Motown and the modern factories were birthed out of. And I also watched this city going back to my parents, my parents particularly watched this city that was a, a working class city where people were on the come up because of racism, pretty much descend into a city that has pretty much gone bankrupt, that has struggled. And so I love that community. I love those people. Those people produced me. When I was talking about the church and the, the groups of people who, when I used to sing in the choir, and uh, those are the people that I love, and I'm for their healing and their liberation. And, and oftentimes, they're the ones that get forgotten in, you know, the conversation of who, who, who are Americans, who are the real Americans, you know? Um, and I, I would offer that 
Black Americans are the real Americans. Mm, Okay, so let's talk about systemic racism. I think that that's something that our country is waking up to this week in a way that it has never been. It's almost like the country is being shaken awake to this issue. Talk to us about what your experience has been of systemic racism, whether it's in industry, in your industry or in communities. The systemic racism conversation, that's like, that is a that is a big thing. <laughs> and, and I, just and I small say that questions t- on this podcast. <laughs> n- no small questions, just just really big ones, mainly because all these issues, especially when we talk about black lives, are are going we're going to have to talk about five things at once. Yeah. And that's why this conversation is generally hard in the pr- first place, because it's hard enough to talk about one thing and to stay focused on like one issue. And it's hard enough to have to hold multiple things in tandem and to be intersectional in that way. So I think that's partly why this conversation is hard. But I also think it's hard to talk about because there has been a real strategy that has been deployed for, for honestly hundreds of years to, to sort of enact racism and violence and then to hide it. And so part of the way that systemic racism just gets hidden in general is through the telling of history. Like if you went through K through 12 school in America, uh, educator Jane Elliott, who's a white woman, loves to say this, you're probably racist. (laughs) Wow. Because the story and the history that we tell ourselves about this country is is inherently false. Stories about Christopher Columbus discovering America, stories about the, the Civil War and what was really going on there. And mainly because history tends to be written by the, the ones who dominate and conquer. That's why we've had a wrong telling uh, of history. So I think first and foremost, we have to acknowledge what is the history of this country? What are the... F- foundational sins. And I'm a Christian, so I like to use uh, kind of this, this moral argument of, of even the language of sin, um, which is just a word that just means, you know, to err or to miss the mark. What are the foundational sins of this nation? And I think we have to fundamentally admit that white supremacy as a idea, not let's take it away for a moment from the heart or, or a type of ignorance, but white supremacy is an idea based on white superiority and black inferiority. Mm. And this idea has been around for hundreds of years. You can trace it back to the, the 1490s. Actually, Ibram Ken- Kendi, Dr. Ibram Kendi, has a great book called Stand from the Beginning, in which he traces every racist idea between Europe, Spain, and America. <laughs> he actually traces the, the roots of them. Wow. Because this is how systemic racism works. It's first an idea. And then the idea gets passed along and then the heart begins to form around the idea and creates emotional attachments to those ideas. So white supremacy is first and foremost an idea. It's not just a a sense of hatred in the heart. It's an idea of white superiority, black inferiority. And that idea led to one of the greatest travesties in human history, which was the commodification of black lives. Slavery. It was, um, it's America's Holocaust. Yeah. And now people love to make the point that slavery, right, was, was, you know, happening in tons of cultures around the world. And it was. Every culture in human history practiced a, a form of slavery. The difference between the Middle Passage and chattel slavery that happened in the West was the commodification of Black lives and the, and the t- tens of millions of bodies that were transported from one part of the world to another. That had never happened in human history. 
A few people trading human beings, as terrible as that is, is not the same thing as creating an industry of Black death. That's the roots of America. We created an industry of Black death. We created an industry of, of Black exploitation, of Black trauma, Black pain. And chattel slavery and the Middle Passage and the, I think, 10 to 12 million Africans that were taken from that continent and brought all along to the Americas North and South was an industry. And that capital, their bodies were capital, but also the fruits of their labor became capital, meaning that the idea of the modern corporation came from slavery. Wow. And so we got to start telling the truth about how this nation was formed. So, right, European colonialists and settlers came to this country to, you know, escape tyranny from England, only to then enforce its own type of tyranny on Black and brown people and indigenous folks. And the genocide, over 60 million between like 1492 and 1600, over 60 million indigenous people were wiped out. Some due to like murder, theft, also disease yeah. because white, European white settlers brought diseases over. Sometimes they weaponized those diseases. So when you have a history that's littered with brutality, rape, theft, genocide, and then you start to build economies on that. And that, that's what happened in this country. We built our economy on the free labor and exploitation of black bodies. So people love to talk about capitalism, right? Or, you know, as like, well, if you just pull yourself up by your bootstrap, if mm -hmm. you just simply work hard and do the right thing like my ancestors did, then you will, you know, have a good life. Well, let's be honest. Capitalism as a system only worked off of the free labor of black bodies for hundreds of years. And actually, even now, it still only works through the cheap or free labor that oftentimes uh, Latino Mexican immigrants provide, you know, to to this country. So I know that feels like a deep dive into like <laughs> a long time ago, but I, I think we have to start to acknowledge the the roots of this, where it has come from and then how the formation of the country built up mm. over a period of time. So let's let's fast forward. Let's let's talk about. What happens when, you know, black bodies, which represents trillions of dollars of industry, their bodies alone, plus the cotton they were picking, right, starts to form the first businesses, the, the first corporations, the first industries, you have a permanent underclass. You have a permanent labor class that is being suppressed, oppressed, now going on hundreds and hundreds of years. And those inequities become laws. So one of the things we we talk about in, in racial justice work is the concept of whiteness. And that is a hard concept. And, and please, I feel like I'm talking a lot. So please this, <laughs> feel free to interrupt. This is why we have yeah. you. <laughs> this is why you don't even need to ask questions. We'll just, you just, you're <laughs> answering all the questions we had and you're, you're, please keep going. Please yeah. keep going. It's so good. Okay. Well, the hard part about this conversation of whiteness is when European immigrants came to this country whether they were Italian, whether they were British, whether they were Irish, German, or, or such, there was a lot of it, strife inside of European relationships right. and, and a lot of hierarchy, class hierarchies from Europe that came over. There's a, a lot of conflict, but you, we know that a lot of that history between British folk and Irish folk and, you know, and Protestant and Catholics, right? Well, that, that wasn't just over there. That came over, over here too, right? Irish were considered lower class you know, yeah, people Italians had to, for a while. Yeah. Well, initially they were the indentured servants, but then when they realized they couldn't build a nation off of indentured servants, that's when they started taking Africans <laughs> and, and buying them initially and then started kidnapping them to come to this country. And so 
Over time, what begins to coalesce in the 20th, early 20th century is this idea of whiteness or this idea of white people. Because up until that point, people were Italian, they were European, they were German, they, they were French, they, were, they had an ethnic identity and a culture and a country that they came from. But when the, one of the things they began to realize was if we are going to build this economy, we need a permanent underclass. And one of the ways we need to do that is to create solidarity with each other. And that's why the term white people were created. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the history of the country. Mm-hmm. White people as, a, as an identity only exist to suppress and oppress Black people. Hmm. That, that phrase alone, I love, uh, there's a couple books, Racial Domination and Racial Progress by Matthew Dedman and Mustafa Mbaer. Uh, they write, you know, uh, whiteness and Blackness were twins birthed from the same womb, that of slavery. The hmm. white, white race, race began to be formed out of a heterogeneous uh, motley collection of Europeans who had never been perceived that they had anything in common. And so systemic racism, to go back to your original question, is really built inside of the American experience, but also it's built inside the the identities of people who call themselves white. The people who who ditch their European heritages in order to become white, in order to suppress Black people. Mm. Pause. (laughs) That is the history of 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 where this country came from, right? Yeah. Even in the forming of this nation, we were only three-fifths of a human being. Right. I mean, that's encoded in law. And so, I mean, you can, I mean, there's so many examples. You can go back through the original, like, documents from the first, like, hundred years of American history and see that the law really only was meant to protect white men who owned property. Let's just take another step back. Even the idea of property is based in a capitalistic system which seeks to commodify land. Yeah. Something that indigenous folks had never done. And that's why there, there was such a contrast of ideologies between indigenous natives here already here and European settlers because they came over and said, now, this is mine now. <laughs> yeah. And then I own this. And then they wrote papers that said, I see I have the, the deed. The property is mine. You don't, you know, that's, that's the initial theft and looting that, that happened in this country. So fast forward, you can then begin to see how building a permanent underclass through this lens of racial identity, whiteness, begins to, through many different forms, initially slavery, then after the slaves became free, then it's, hey, we need to uh, create uh, voter suppression laws. We need to enact this thing called Jim Crow in the South, which was this whole other set of rules uh, (laughs) in terms of like white vigilantes and what they're able to do, ways in which they were able to enact justice on their terms and not based on an equal system for everybody. And, and these laws begin to suppress, oppress Black people and, and make them that permanent underclass who would always be subject to white domination. Right. Which was like the ultimate misnomer in saying that slavery was over and then creating a state full of segregation, Jim Crow laws, sharecropping. Yep. And can we talk for a moment about what happened after the civil rights movement, because I think there's this, there's been this like myth in white America that the civil rights movement put this to rest, put racism to rest in the country. Mm. And the white community right now, maybe many would say, sure, here and there, there's some prejudice, but didn't we, we had a black president. Doesn't that mean yeah. that was the end of racism in America? 
Can we talk about that massive disconnect that's happened in our country? So, okay, yes, let's let's talk about that. First, what I want to do is is continue the line from from slavery to emancipation to the force to the to the coming together of the police state. So after after slavery, the idea of the police was created. And then we have the 13th Amendment, which, you know, supposedly frees slaves, but then also says unless you commit a crime. So then you have the formation of the police state who then begins to use the legality of the law to to lock people up. Um, like I said, it was done through vigilantes, through Jim Crow era, but it was also done through the the police state that was beginning to develop in the early 20th century. And then what we have through the development of the police state is mass incarceration, which black and brown people have always disproportionately been subject to. And, you know, America as a whole, we lock up more people <laughs> disproportionately than any other country in, in the world, even like communist China. <laughs> And, and 40% so, of those are black. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, look at the 13th Amendment and wonder why. It became the way in which we, we've done that. So after, you know, at this point, probably 100 years post-slavery, we're dealing in the 1950s, there was this catalyzing movement that happened because a man named Emmett Till was lynched. And at this point, I mean, thousands, if not, have, of black men and women had been lynched, meaning hung from a tree. Yeah. Billie Holiday has the song Strange Fruit yes, about that. yeah. Emmett Till's murder was a catalyzing murder, mainly because media was beginning to be a part of the picture. And one of the things that Emmett Till's mother did was she put her son's uh, body from the funeral, which had been so beaten, you couldn't recognize his face. They put it in the newspapers. And that was the catalyzing moment for the civil rights movement, because Black Americans began to finally realize that enough is enough. And the only way this is going to change is this is if we disrupt power. I didn't realize so, it was the picture. Yeah, it was Emmett Till. Mind wow. you, Emmett Till was lynched because a white woman, Carolyn Bryant, had claimed that he had like whistled at her and, you know, was disrespectful to her. And then the white men in the community just drug him up and, and hung him on a tr- beat him senseless and hung him on a tree. And this is Mississippi, right? Uh, yeah, I believe it was Mississippi. Uh, I have to double check that. But uh, yeah, I believe it was Mississippi. Oh. Um, Nina Simone has that song, Mississippi Goddamn, mm-hmm. which is, again, we all know what's going on in Mississippi. We mm-hmm. know what's going on in Alabama. We know what's going on in the South, right? And it was also happening in the North, too. Mm-hmm. But it was e- even more egregious overtly in the South. So when the civil rights movement began to be catalyzed, you had Black Americans, mostly Black church folk, mostly women, who were doing civil disobedience, meaning segregation was the the law of the era. So, you know, black folks couldn't sit at a lunch counter with white people. So what they would just do was they would go to these lunch counters and sit there as a protest. And then the police would get called and then they knew they were going to be jailed. So the civil rights movement begins to birth the cry for like equal rights under the law, which is the tenet supposedly of yeah. the, this country. So black Americans were just appealing to the American tradition in that sense, saying, hey, your laws that you created say that we have a right to be here too. Why can't, why is this, why aren't we? Why can't we shop here? Why can't we engage in this? Why are you still denying us the right to vote? Um, and again, even white women had gotten the right to vote long before black Americans. And like my grandmother is a, is a refugee from the South. She, the great migration, she left the South because of fear of racial terror in, in right, regards to right. voting. 
Yeah. So she right. moved to Detroit. That's why I'm, that's why I'm born in Detroit. I am born. I was born in Detroit because my grandmother fled the South because of wow. racial terror related to Jim Crow. So again, we're, we we look at a few years ago Syrian refugees, and we like some of us <laughs> cried and mourned and said that is so terrible. These people are fleeing their home because of violence, but we don't acknowledge that that same type of violence wow. happens here. So civil rights happens, of course, and and just like most history, in the retelling of that history, what happens is the very people who caused the oppression begin to say, "Well, we were part of the solution. We fixed that. Yeah, we were, because it was the right side of history." So many of the people who were, you know, shouting at the first uh, school integration, the angry white mobs who were lynching folks, all of a sudden became, you know, yeah, we believe in civil rights. Yeah, we da 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 da. You know? Right, right. Wasn't and MLK like one of the most hated men in America? He didn't even have a high approval rating, even from like 75 percent of like black Americans. Because even there was still this fear of if you cause too much trouble, we're going to pay the price for it. Mm -hmm. So Martin Luther King was a rebel rouser. Like my aunt tells a story of how she wanted to go to Washington. She was in college and she wanted to go to Washington, D.C. for the March on Washington. And my grandma was like, don't you go there because <laughs> like, she she's like protection, wow. like you're going to get hurt. That's the kind of fear of racial terror that black folks have lived under forever. But fast forward from the 60s onward, what we did was we started to tell a sanitized version of the 60s, a story that wasn't really true, meaning that, you know, things were bad, we were segregated, but then Martin Luther King died in which, you know, now we have Black people and white people can go to school together. And, and we've told these stories that just are not true to the history. We don't tell the truth that a wave of Black leadership was utterly killed. Ma Malcolm X. Martin Luther King, Medgar Evers, the FBI killed Fred Hampton, who was the leader of the Black Panther Party. I mean, just straight up shot up his whole house. <laughs> like the FBI. I mean, it's it's all in the, in the records. You can you can see the footage. It's it's all there, clear as day. The FBI killed Fred Hampton. So you had a whole wave of Black leadership killed, and that's why the civil rights movement began to uh, slow down, was because of violence. And so then what happens is white people co-opted the story. And then begin to tell a story, you know, about that wasn't true, especially around Martin Luther King and and also sanitizing his message that I have a dream speech to say, hey, we're, it's about equality and white and black people all just getting together, forgetting that the only reason why Dr. King was even in D.C. was because they had had enough <laughs> of the racial terror and they were inviting white people to come die with them in the South for liberation. Right. And so we isolate the I have a dream speech that little segment from that whole thing. But the whole point of the speech was King inviting white people to come get on the front lines of civil disobedience. That's the part of history white Americans never remember, and even some Black Americans don't remember. So fast forward, we get a Black president. You know, Blacks begin to integrate into society a lot more. Segregation is ended. But racial inequities don't end, right? Certain laws get passed. We get a Voting Rights Act. We get, you know, certain things like affirmative action. But what begins to happen after that? Anyone that remotely receives a government handout gets demonized as you're just receiving a handout and you're a welfare queen. Yeah. Mind you, the whole history of this country was a government handout to white European immigrants. That after World War I and II, Military officers, white military officers were given a GI Bill. They were given land in the Midwest to Housing. farm. They were taught by the government to, to sustain this land. Yeah. They, were, they were given generational wealth by the government. And then those same people turned back around and said mm. any Black American seeking to use the government uh, to help, help themselves pull themselves up 
uh, they're wrong for it. I mean, you see it all through the 70s and the 80s with 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 Ronald Reagan mm. and, and George Bush, George H. Bush, uh, the first one. You see this demonization of of black people seeking equal rights under the under the law. But again, we told ourselves a different story about it. And I don't know, fast forward to Barack Obama. Somehow people thought the experience of a black president being elected somehow ended racism or that we became post-racial after yeah. that was was a, a lie. It's like, oh my God, if a woman becomes a lead of a company, does that mean there's no more sexism ever? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no. And you, you two are two powerful women that work in industries. You know that's not true. You can have a female CEO of a corporation, but that doesn't mean that sexism inside of that corporation is now gone instantly and overnight. But somehow we tell ourselves these stories when it comes to, you know, Black people. But if anything, I'll make this parallel and then we can ask more questions and move on. There was an era after the Civil War called Reconstruction that a lot of people don't know about. Reconstruction was an era in which if Black folks were to ever really be integrated in society, you know, after such a trauma like slavery, that would have been the era. They started to. They started to gain political power. They started to gain economic power. In fact, in South Carolina, the legislature was at one point was primarily Black in South Carolina in like the 1890s. So right. Surreal. You can't even get that right now. No. Yeah. 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 Totally. <laughs> in South Carolina. Totally. But, you know, and so uh, after eight years of leadership from this particular legislator, they did such a good job. It angered white people so much that they began to to vote these people out, change laws that made it difficult for black people to gain political office. Here's why. It goes back to the idea which white supremacy is built on white superiority, black inferiority, because here's the truth. When Black people lead well, it angers white racists mm. because it dismantles the lie that, that they are, they're better than us. So what happened was good, W.E.B. Du Bois called about this time period, this is how he called it. He goes, good Negro government, good Negro governance created white backlash. Wow. And this is what we saw in 2016. Eight years of a president who led well, probably one of the best presidents we've ever had, angered. We, you know, they say, well, we was about conservatism. Mm. We were just angry about these, da, da, da. No, it, mm. what having a good black president did was it angered white folks so much that they went and voted for someone who's overt, overtly racist. Oof. Yeah. So I know this is a very, very, very complicated question. And I know that you know, talking about things to do next and solutions is is not something that can be solved on a 30-minute podcast. <laughs> but <laughs> for the sake of, of, of what we are trying to put out into the world to serve and, and listen and to make any possible change that we can and work towards solutions, what are some things that our audience and some solutions that you think that we can all do as a, as a people, white people, black people, like what, yeah. what can we do? So I think the first thing that has to happen before we can ever get to any solution is we have to allow ourselves to grieve. Mm-hmm. Because oftentimes when, when there's an injustice, our first thing and our first impulse is, well, how can we fix that? How can we do that? Right. And that's not a bad impulse necessarily. But if we don't fully grieve the problem, we will never actually have adequate solutions for it. So yeah. I think the it's first the same thing... with f- everything in, in life too. I think that's something yeah. that I, 
hearing a, a lot about just in psychology across the board is that whatever it is that you're going through, whatever somebody's trauma is, um, even in you know marriage counseling, it was all like, okay, wait, pause. What are you feeling right now? And where do you feel it? And sit there and go mm. there, and touch that wound and press on it and like, like feel that bruise and, and sit there in it. Yeah. And it's true because you can't get to any solutions or healing without sitting in the, in the nope. first. So that's good. Yeah. Ruby Sales, a civil rights icon, asked the question, where does it hurt? Where does it hurt? And mm-hmm. that she was posing that question to white folks. Where does it hurt? Yeah. Where wow. do you hurt? And, 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 and as, as Black people, I'm sure you, you guys have been, you know, I'm sure feeling the grief in different ways and having to maybe suppress to, to move on and holding on to such rightful anger and grief. And mm-hmm. then so many white people haven't really allowed themselves to, to grieve. And this is such a, a, a teaching season for us to stop and to pause and to listen and to, yeah, you're right. Grieve, let ourselves first educate ourselves to understand what our ancestors and we, what we've been doing and how we've been living and thinking that we didn't yeah. realize and we need to, yeah, lament and grieve and lament and grieve the, the trauma and the history of what was done to black people but also lament and grieve the lack of identity that whiteness has created for white people. Mm. I, think, I think ultimately white folks in this country are, are deeply lost. They've cut themselves off from their own history and created a fictional history that wasn't true and then used our bodies to, to prove that point. Full stop. That's, that has to be grieved first and foremost before anybody can come in and fix or, or, or do anything. And that, we didn't get into this problem overnight, so we're not going to get out of it overnight. And that grieving is not just for a season. You're going to grieve off and on for the entirety of your life. Because the pain happened before you and I got here. And we, we were born into the pain. We were born into sin in that way. And so what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to enter into seasons of grief and lament and then seasons where we, where we work and find solutions and then we grieve again because we see how big and what feels like insurmountable the problem is. But, you know, my ancestors never had any type of idea that they would ever become free for hundreds of years. But they still resisted. Even when it wasn't, it, there was no, no one imagined a law would ever be passed to free the slaves. That wasn't, even without hope, they still resisted. They resisted tyranny, they resisted oppression, and they, and they grieved and they mourned. And that's where American music is, is born and birthed out of that, like this, the, the gospel and the blues and the soul music. And it's all from the, the pain. Right. And, and so allowing ourselves to grieve is first and foremost. I think as we allow ourselves to grieve collectively, and we're all going to grieve in similar and different ways, I think doing what you're already doing, which is listening and amplifying voices of color, particularly uh, black and indigenous voices, and even more in particular, black queer voices, <laughs> black female voices. Uh, that's going to be part of the, the the calculus here. And here's why I say that. In particular, name those folks. Malcolm X said the most disrespected person in America is the black woman. The most vulnerable person in America is the black woman. And the, and there's something about being one of the most targeted persons, being the ones, as Malcolm X said, the ones who catch hell, because. The ones who catch the most hell are the ones who have the real story of what our society is like. 
You might think you know what America is based on your experience of America, but I promise you the most marginalized person in this country understands really what this country is about. And those are the voices we have to amplify. We need to be listening. My intellectual reading, scholarship, and who I've been taught from the most have been Black women, whether it was my mother, my grandmother, my, my aunties, and my sisters, my cousins. And, and then the Black scholarship of, of intellectuals like Kimberly Crenshaw or, or Brittany Cooper, these Black feminists, Audre Lorde, Maya Angelou, um, Angela Davis, uh, I mean, the list goes on, Toni Morrison, these, these Black women who, who showed us a portrait of reality that scares the hell out of us because it was their reality. And very few people would raise their hand and say, yeah, sure, I want to be a Black woman in this country. <laughs> You know, we need to pay attention to those those women and their leadership and the organizations they're building. Black Lives Matter is an organization started by three queer black women. Because they know what it feels like to catch hell in this country. And they were some of the first people on the front lines of doing activism before it was cool to do it. Yeah. You know, when Trayvon Martin was shot, when 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 Ferguson happened, right, like in our generational iteration, they were some of the first people doing that work. So I think we need to listen and amplify. Uh, there's a hashtag going around amplify. Amplify melanated voices yes. or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think we need black leadership in this country desperately. We had a taste of it with Barack Obama, but I think now what we're crying out for is more black leadership to to that tons of folks, no matter who you are, what color your skin is, that you can rally and get behind because those people are going to better understand mm. the reality of the situation. So I think it starts there. And then I mean, there, there's a ton of ways you can go from here. There's tons of ways to organize. There's tons of ways to mobilize. Donating money to organizations is, is a great way to start, but also... Do you have any favorites? Do you have any that you are behind that you think are legitimate and can actually kind of move the needle, so to speak? Yeah. I think Color of Change does a great job, Rashad Robinson and their group. I've, I've done a, a petition with them uh, and, and they've just been great people to work with. I think Color of Change is a great organization to do that with. What do they do? Oh, well, they just raise issues in terms of like black lives. One of the things that they do is help elect officials in public office that are going to be like progressive prosecutors who people who actually like hold the police accountable. Um, that's one thing that they do. They, they obviously highlight areas of injustices and um, um, through petitions, through activism, they help mobilize groups. I did a phone bank with them uh, for the 2018 midterms. They hosted a, a phone bank thing here in down, uh, at a hotel near the airport in L.A. Um, in which we were calling folks around house races for the 2018 midterms. And they did like a breakfast and it was like all the black aunties came out, <laughs> you know, and then it was like a DJ and we were all like talking and then like, and then we we're all sitting there with our computers, phone banking. Uh, color change is, is, is super great on tons of issues with this. But one of the things I do a lot is I try my best to support uh, activists on the ground. Like I, my friend Andre Henry is incredible. He's an activist. Oh, and a he's voice amazing. In Pasadena. Yeah. And uh, so find ways to to support these people, whether financially or um, showing up when they're when they're or promoting their their events. And when they're because Andre is a scholar. A lot of people don't know that he is a a actual scholar. He can do a dissertation on Martin Luther King in a minute. And uh, showing up for events that he's doing or he does nonviolent resistance training classes. Um, I think finding black voices who are out there doing the work is going to be super crucial. And as white people, getting behind them, actually supporting them in, in a myriad of ways. Those are going to be some of the best ways. And lastly, I'll say one of the things we have to start doing is showing political solidarity with each other. And that means 
what are the policies on the ground that are going to help Black people on a local level, a state level, federal level, and, and which politicians are getting behind those ideas? So we need an economic agenda for Black America. We yeah. need to be pressuring in this 2020 election and not just on the federal level or who's running for president. We need to be doing that on local levels. Like, what is your agenda for Black America? How are we going to fix the economic disparities? Because one of the things that systemic racism did was it created income inequality that disproportionately affects black and brown people. So we need to be asking the question, why is it that it's projected by 2053, the medium black household income is going to be zero? Yeah. We need to be asking these questions around economic disparities in black household. Why was it in, in the Great Recession of 2007 to 2010, uh, a third of black wealth was lost? A third of the collective generation, which isn't even a lot to begin with, a third of it was lost. We disproportionately lost more than white Americans did. Well, and same thing happening in this pandemic. It's yep. the black community is getting so disproportionately hit both economically and health wise. Health disparities, black maternal health issues. Yeah. You know, we have food deserts. There's also healthcare deserts where the people don't have access. Southwest Detroit, where my grandmother's house is, I say that because she doesn't live there anymore. Her house is virtually worthless because Marathon Gas, which is an oil refinery, has been dumping pollutants into the atmosphere of Southwest Detroit for decades. And my grandmother, who's 90 and has health issues, can't breathe the air. Wow. And then the property values are worthless. So imagine owning this home that you've had your entire life, raised your kids in, that you've paid off, and it's now worthless mm. because of environmental racism. Wow. Oof. My sister went to school in Southwest Detroit and grew up with severe asthma that really encumbered much of her life. Guess what? Newsweek did a major report. All these Black kids in Southwest Detroit had asthma. Wow. My grandmother's neighbors, who all garden in that, that neighborhood, they, my grandmother just told me this fall when I said so she lives in Texas now with my aunt. She told me and started naming off the women in her neighborhood that died in their 60s because they gardened in their, in their backyards. They died of cancer. Why? Because they were eating poisoned ground. So wow. COVID happens and, and Black folks can't even breathe in Southwest Detroit. And then they're disproportionately dying from COVID because the, the health disparities that are already set up against them are now killing them. And my dad and my mom just told me they're back in Detroit now. They were like, we can't even tell you how many funerals we, we have to go to or people that we grew up with and people just dying. So COVID is, is revealing a lot of these disparities and really showing us that systemic racism has economically disadvantaged communities of color, Black and Indigenous communities. And the questions we need to be asking ourselves is how do we heal this, but how do we fix this economically? My opinion, it has to be some form of reparations. Mm -hmm. And I know that's a controversial subject for people, but I would encourage a lot of your audience to go read The Case for Reparations by ta Coates. You can go Google it. It's through The Atlantic. And he actually highlights how this has worked through multiple cities across America. But economists now genuinely are starting to acknowledge that the only way to fix the black and white wealth gap is going to be through some type of repar reparational work that has to happen. And we can do that individually with each other, but it, it's going to have to be on a systemic level. So I think white allies are going to have to start asking the question of how do we support Black folks, not just when they march in the street against police brutality, right. but see that as the tip of the iceberg to these deeper uh, economic problems that are actually causing our, our demise. Wow. You are just, I'm just so grateful for, for you as both a wealth of information and 
I just feel like you're you're such a, a gut check for our nation right now. I want everyone to just be able to to hear this. And I guess my my last question for you in a, a time where so many of us are are sitting in this collective grief, what's giving you hope? You know, the hope question is is honestly always gonna be the hardest question because it's I, I battle with it. And I and I think people of good conscience should battle with it because I have every reason not to hope and it's completely justified. I don't have to. Things may never change. And judging from our history, they, it's more likely that they don't change. As much as the progress we have seen in light of the, the weight of the problem, no, it's not even close. And so in that way, I, I, there's this dance I feel like I do with letting go of hope and just accepting the moment for what it is knowing that it may never change. Like I said, my ancestors lived through brutality and, and their own Holocaust and, through slavery in the Middle Passage and had no, no hope of fully ever getting free. They knew that they were going to be in this for generations at the very least. But yet they still resisted. And so, if anything, I think my hope looks like resisting systems of thought institutions that perpetuate anti-blackness the concept which is what we talked about the idea of white supremacy is is i resist even if it's hopeless i resist because they resisted for me to be here so i'm going to resist for the children that are going to come after even if i don't see it in my lifetime and while i have some superficial hopes i guess around you know elections and things we can do right now around policies I think this is going to be a generational work and we have to root ourselves in the reality that we may never see full liberation of black people in our lifetime. And that is okay because if we do the work, maybe in another generation, they'll get to see it because we did that work. Now we paved that road and that way for them. And I think white allies in particular are going to have to wrestle with that, that we might be able to get some substantive change here in the next decade or so, maybe. But that's going to be part of a greater, longer generational work to heal something that happened for hundreds and hundreds of years. So I don't know. Let's, if there is any hope, let's hope in each other and our ability to mobilize, organize, stand up for each other, advocate for each other. And perhaps we will begin to see the, the turning of systemic racism. Thank you so much, William. I uh, I feel so humbled just being in the presence of, of you and all of your wisdom and the history. I'm so, uh, you're incredible. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your, your heart and your voice and uh, your wisdom with us. We love you. We love you. We love so you guys grateful too. for you. <laughs> Thank you guys for having me and also keep keep being badass women in the world who are knocking on doors, shaking down doors, kicking through doors. <laughs> y'all are y'all are doing it. And even for you, Caitlin, like this season that you're in and you're there if I can feel the the grief and the like of everything that's going on. But I also know that if you can do what you've done over these last number of years, then that there's gonna be greater for you and that there's gonna be a resurrection of even some old dreams that you thought you had to lay down that are going to come again. I, I just see that for you so clearly. Like you are a mother of a movement 
You really are. And I really believe that this movement that you created around the giving keys is just going to be one of many. Mm. Like when they, when they think of your life in the, in the future, they're going to say, Caitlin did this, but also yeah, um, amen. <laughs> this, this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, like there's so much coming after you. Like, I feel that the way for you, I feel that for Kim Biddle, like there's so much that's coming for y'all after too, because the way you sold and poured into, you know, the poor, you did the good part. You did the very thing that Jesus commanded us to do and the way that you you inspired and created change with homelessness. And I, that's just, that's coming back to you, but also there's, there's going to be, there's a greater work for you too coming. So. Thank you. I, I receive that and appreciate that and say the same for you too, with everything that you already accomplished and knowing that this is only the beginning for you. Yeah. And, and, and dreams and how you're going to be used in this, in this world and this generation and for generations to come. Hmm. Thank you guys for joining this episode of Real Good Company, a show about real people building good companies that make a big impact. Music from this episode is probably from one of Caitlin's old demos. <laughs> Megan Schwindling was our producer. And thank you guys so much for joining. And always remember to stay in Real, real Good, good company. company.